We've entitled this chapter, The Greatest Event in Human History. And uh, if you did not get a study sheet when you came in, we'll take just a second to let you get one of those. Would you just raise your hand? Got a few down front here, fellas. The greatest event in human history. And of course, the greatest event in human history is when heaven opens and the Lord Jesus Christ comes out of heaven. The Bible says he'll be followed with the armies of heaven, which will be us. And he is going to come to this planet and he is going to, for the first time since Adam fell in the garden, he's finally going to get the glory that he deserves. And that's what Revelation 19 is all about. It is that time when the Lord comes to this planet to rule and to reign and to get the glory that He deserves. And one of the things that we've been talking about, uh, as far as our outline is concerned, that makes this the greatest event in human history, is this is the event to which all of God's Word is pointing. It is the event to which all of God's Word is pointing. And we could say it this way. If you want to go historically, okay, and just going to go back in time to the first thing that the Bible reveals, what it reveals to us in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, what it reveals to us is that historically, the first event that we can really go back and say, here was a beginning point. God was sitting on a throne in heaven, and on the earth, God had set his, his anointed cherub, Lucifer, on that throne. And there came a day, however, when Lucifer wanted to sit where God was sitting. And in his pride, he lifted himself up. And there was a battle that began to take place between a throne and who was going to sit on the throne. So historically, that's where the Bible begins. If you want to go historically and see where it ends, it ends with somebody sitting on a throne. And everything in between is all about who's going to get there. If you want to go chronologically and you want to just go to the book of Genesis, what you're going to find is there's six days of creation where there, every one of them has an evening and a morning. You come to the seventh and it is a day of rest that God blesses and he sanctifies it and he sets that one apart for himself. It's the day of the Lord. When you factor in what Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 says, that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and you plug that into that equation, what you find out from the very first chapter of the Bible, moving into that second chapter, is that God is spelling out there will be 6,000 years of human history, but watch that seventh day because that's a day of rest. It's a day that has no evening or morning. It's a day that God blessed because it's His day. It's the day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to set up His throne on the earth. And the Scripture says He will rule and reign on this planet for, count them, a thousand years. That's that seventh day. That's why we've been talking about all of the Bible is pointing to this event. And let me, let me just show you something, just by way of illustration to, to show you this. Go back to the book of Exodus for just a second. Exodus chapter 3. There's two places in the Bible where God tells someone to take off their shoes. And the reason that He tells them to take off their shoes is the place that they were standing was what kind of ground, y'all? It was holy ground. One of them is found in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5. It's the story of... Moses in the burning bush. We'll look at the other one in just a, a second in Joshua chapter 5 when the captain of the Lord's host appears out of heaven to Joshua. 
But you know what's, what's really interesting about these two events that where God tells someone to take their shoes off? They're both a picture of what Revelation chapter 19 is all about. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In Exodus chapter 3, you notice in verse 2 that the angel of the Lord, which is always a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible, but the angel of the Lord in verse 2, watch what he does. He comes out of heaven in flaming fire, it says, and appears unto Moses. Now, if you're dialed in to what the Word of God teaches at all, you already know that this is exactly what Second Thessalonians chapter 1 says is going to take place. The Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven, how, y'all? In, in flaming fire, okay? And, and he tells Moses in verse 7 that he's seen the affliction of his people, which is a picture of the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. And he says in verse 8, I am come down to deliver them. And again, if you know anything about the second coming of Christ, if you know anything about what Revelation 19 is really all about, it's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do at His second coming. Romans chapter 11 and verse 26, listen to it. It says that after the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, just like you see in verse 8. Just an incredible little deal when you begin to see how all of God's Word is pointing to this event that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 19. It's everywhere, y'all. You don't have to do any spiritual or scriptural gymnastics to do that. All you have to know is what the Bible teaches about that event, and it's all there. Let, let me show you again in Joshua chapter 5. Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Unless they moved it, it should be right after that. Joshua chapter 5, and check out what's happening here. In verse 13, Joshua is about to enter the battle of Jericho. When all of a sudden, Joshua looks up, and the captain of the Lord's host appears in the sky, and he's got his sword drawn, and of course, Joshua is scared out of his mind. He doesn't know you know, what is actually taking place. He doesn't know if he's for him or against him. But it's significant enough, it says that he falls flat on his face and he begins to worship. And you know why it was that significant? Because the captain of the Lord's host, again, in the Old Testament, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the Lord's hosts, those are the armies of heaven, all of the angelic hosts. And again, if you know Revelation 19, all of those that comprise his, his bride. But listen, everything that's coming down here in Joshua chapter 5 is all a picture of what's taking place through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19, right before the battle of Armageddon, what happens is the captain of the Lord's host in Revelation 19 and verse 11 comes out of heaven. Revelation 19:14 says, With all of these armies which are in heaven, they'll be following him. And verse 15 of Revelation 19 says, That out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. He's got his sword drawn just like the Lord Jesus Christ has it drawn here in Joshua chapter 5. Again, a beautiful picture of the second coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, what's interesting about this is in both places, what the Lord does is he tells Moses, he tells Joshua to take your shoes off because the place you're standing is holy ground. And what made it holy? The very fact that God himself is there makes that holy. But if you're thinking it all, you also got to think about the fact that, hey, God talked to a lot of people. God talked to David. God talked to Abraham. God talked to a lot of folks in the Bible, and he never told them to take their shoes off. So what's up with that? Was he more holy here than he was He was going to be at another time? No, listen, it was holy because of what was taking place there, but... It was holy because of what is going to take place there. Because do you understand? The first place that we looked at is when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and he begins to carry out his campaign on the earth. You realize the first place is where he told Moses, take your shoes off, this is holy ground. The last place when he ends the campaign is where he talked to Joshua and says, Joshua, you better get your shoes off, buddy, because this is holy ground. And again, what I'm trying to get you to see, all through the Bible, all God's doing is just pointing to that day that He blessed way back there in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, the day of the Lord when the Lord Jesus Christ finally comes back, finally gets the glory that He deserves. There's a second reason that this event is so significant that it would be the greatest event in human history, and that is it's the event for which all of God's people are praying. When Jesus taught us to pray in Luke chapter 11, what he taught us is how to approach God as our Father and how to, to understand who he is, that he's a perfect Father, like we talked about just a, a few minutes ago during our worship time or during our prayer time. He, he talks about hallowing him and, and worshiping him when we come. But the very first request of prayer that he taught us to pray was for the kingdom to come. Now, let me just ask you guys something. Okay. If you pray for the kingdom to come, is it going to come any sooner? You know what? We, we believe that God is a very ordered God, and He's got a plan, and He's going to work His plan any way He jolly well pleases. So, why pray for the kingdom to come if He's going to do it anyway? And if He's going to do it on His time schedule? Now, if you don't pray for the kingdom to come, is it going to come? Almost assuredly. I mean, the book already says it, so it's as good as done, okay? So, why would God teach us to pray about the inevitable? I mean, if it really doesn't have any bearing, then why in the world pray about it? And a classic illustration of this, at least in my mind, is in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is having his morning devotions. And on this particular morning, he happens to be reading from the book of Jeremiah. I mean, isn't it, it blows my mind that my boy Daniel has the same book in his Bible that we've got in ours, man. And he's just cruising through having his daily devotions. Now, what you need to understand is that the time when Daniel is having his little daily devotion in, in Daniel chapter 9... The nation of Israel is in captivity. They've been in captivity for 68 years. And Daniel is there, faithful man, 
reading the Word of God. And he's coming along as he's reading through in the book of Jeremiah. And you know what he finds out? Jeremiah, listen now, Jeremiah prophesied about the very captivity that Daniel finds himself in. And he's like, oh my, check this out. This is what, I'm, I'm living this. It's kind of like us living in these last days going, check this out. It's all unfolding just right before our very eyes. It, same thing happening with Daniel. He's looking at this going, my goodness, man, this I'm living this. And he finds out in Jeremiah's prophecy, he works it out, and what he finds out is in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, it tells how long the captivity is going to be. It's going to be 70 years. And he finds this out in the prophecy. He knows by doing the math, we've been here 68 years. And he figures out, because he's a very astute mathematician, that they've got two more years left in this thing. And so you know what Daniel chapter 9 begins to show that Daniel did? He begins to pray that God's people would be delivered from the bondage they're in. Hello? Why in the world are you praying about the inevitable? God already said it, and when God says it, it's as good as done. Why is he praying about it? Same reason that God tells us to pray for the kingdom to come. Because you know what? God has chosen, y'all, to use our prayers for the accomplishment of His will. And you know what? God's people were going to be delivered after 70 years. But you know what? In the scheme of how God worked, you know, He used Daniel's prayer to the accomplishment of that. And you know what? I can't figure it out, y'all. But when we pray for the kingdom to come, do you understand that the Bible says that He holds our prayers up in heaven and they burn as incense before Him? And one of these days, God is going to open that, the prayers of the saints, and God is going to use our prayers to be the very thing that He uses to accomplish His will on the earth. That's why you pray. And you see, as you're praying for the kingdom to come, what begins to happen to you? As we've talked about, the kingdom comes in you. And that is so significant. Because what begins to happen in you is you begin to have a passion for Him to get the glory that He deserves. And when you begin to get that passion in you, you know what? Sin doesn't seem quite as inviting. Because you realize who He is. You realize what He deserves. And in and, and light of that, how in the world could you spit in His face? And so as we pray for the kingdom to come, the kingdom comes in us. And then in Revelation chapter 19, and why don't you go there now. We saw that not only is this the event to which all of God's word is pointing, it is not only the event for which all of God's people are praying, it is also the event at which all of God's hosts will be praising. And we've worked our way through Revelation chapter 19 through the first six verses now. We saw in letter A that we will praise Him because His salvation has been fully exemplified. We saw secondly, letter B, we'll praise Him because His justice has been fully executed. And then letter C, we saw that we will praise Him because His sovereignty has been fully exercised. And all of this to say that for the last 6,000 years, our salvation has not been complete because we have not yet received a glorified body. That will be what 
completes our salvation. Romans chapter 8, it talks about the redemption of of our body. For the last 6,000 years, ever since sin entered into human existence, God has not really executed His justice. But in Revelation chapter 19, it's all done. God has, for the last 6,000 years, though the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, He's never really fully exercised His sovereignty on this planet. But in Revelation chapter 19, He will. And four times in this chapter, what it does is it shows us in heaven when He finally is taking up His rule and His reign and we're saying, Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We just can't get His praise out of our lips. And now, go on to the other side there. Number four, it is the event for which all of God's church has been preparing. It is the event for which all of God's church has been preparing. Look at verse 7, Revelation chapter 19. It says... Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. Watch this now. And His wife hath made herself ready. Her wife hath made herself ready. And maybe there's some folks that are here today, you're newer to the Bible and you don't really understand what the the whole scheme of this is. God has a son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God and very God. He's God in a human body. And then God's sovereign plan, we are living in a period of time that biblically would be called the church age. The church is called the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. We are the lamb's wife. The lamb is it's already all the way through the book of Revelation been established. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see here in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7 is we're coming at a time in Revelation 19 when the bride, the wife, has made herself ready. And the whole purpose of what we're going to do in our study together this morning is we're going to talk about, as the bride of Christ, how we need to make ourselves ready for this event that is the greatest event in all of human history. When He finally gets the glory that He deserves and He finally has taken us to be His bride, the marriage has been consummated and we have eaten the marriage supper of the Lamb. How do we prepare ourselves? And you know what? This this really fits great today because today, of course, is, is Father's Day. And, uh, man, this whole thing of marriage is what allows uh, us men to be called a father because the fruit of marriage is, is children. And, and you know what? It's a, it's a great, great lesson for all of us men today to learn how to be a bride. How about that Father's Day message? You know, you're going to be at the restaurant in just a little while, and they're going to say, well, what did your pastor preach on today? Well, he told all of the men in the room how to be brides. That's what he did. And that sounds rather feminine, but let me just tell you something. This is monumental. You know what? One of the greatest things you could ever do, men, to help your marriage is to learn how to be the bride of Christ. 
that he's looking for. And I'm just telling you, you be the right kind of bride and you'll be the right kind of husband. I promise you. And you know something that's just real interesting to me? In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 19, God clears off a little space and he says, Husbands, love your wives. Duh. Right? I mean, why did we marry her? We loved her, you know? I mean, husbands, love your wives. And then, I mean, if that isn't unbelievable enough that he would command us to do the obvious, listen to what he goes on to say. And be not bitter against them. I mean, what? (laughs) Where does that come from? Husbands, love your wives. And don't be bitter against them. And you know what? I've taken years of my life to ponder that. And sitting where I sit in my office and talking to enough men and enough women through the years, I, I think I begin to understand it. I'm not going to die on this hill, but there's some, some definite truth here. You know, we, we've talked about as, as a church that everything that is spiritual in this world, God has taken the physical things of the world to be pictures of it because he knows that we're a little dense, we're just a little slow, and he knows, like little kids, we need pictures of things. And so what he does is he is constantly using pictures for us to to teach us. And, and with, with this whole thing of, of being a, a, a husband and loving your wife and be not bitter against them, do you know what causes most people to be bitter and to just get all cheesed off at people and all that stuff? You know what the real root of it is? Romans chapter 2 tells us in verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest another. For wherein thou judgest another, you're guilty of the same things also. In other words, you know what ticks you off about people? You see in them the very things that you do. Okay? And, and you know, men... A lot of times what I have found, when husbands come in and they're bitter against their wife, they're just going through these problems, you know, in their marriage. You know what I've found? That about 99.9999999% of the time, what God is doing is He is letting this husband see in this bride exactly what he is doing in his relationship to his husband, and she is mirroring for him what he is as a bride to his husband. Did I lose you there? In other words, men, when your wife is doing something that ticks you off and you find yourself getting bitter toward her, just put on the brakes. Just put on the brakes and just ask God. God... Is there anything that you're trying to teach me about how I'm being as a bride to you through what I'm feeling toward my bride right now? It's, a, it's just an amazing, amazing thing 
that there is an incredible parallel there. You know what? The same thing is true because God not only gives men in the relationship that he has with his wife the term husband, the same term that he uses for himself, but God gives us as men another title that he gives to us in our relationship with our children that he reserves for himself, and that is father, right? And you know what? About 99.99999% of the time, what I've found is when your kids are just about to drive you insane and you just can't get them to understand this, whatever it is that they're doing, that's driving you crazy, you might want to just put the brakes on and just see, are my kids right now being a mirror to me in how I'm being as God's child in my relationship to Him as my Father. Because it is unbelievable how your kids just are picturing for you everything that God's trying to show you about you in your relationship with Him. You know, I've dealt with, you know, through the years, all kinds of different issues and so forth. And there's an issue, you know, that, that uh, a new syndrome that uh, children have, uh, attention deficit disorder. You know, they just cannot relate chastisement to what they just did. You know, so it's real difficult to ever get them to learn because they can't connect the dots. And, you know, it's one of those deals where, you know, you just, after a while, you want to pull your hair out and go, wow, that is just so weird in light of what the Scripture says. And we've dealt with some of those issues in days gone by, only to find out years later that Dad is addicted to pornography. And there's chastisement going on all around his life. But you know what? He just can't connect the chastisement to what God is trying to show him in his life. And so what God does, he says, well, let me show you through your kids, you idiot. Let, let me show you through your wife if you can't get this. And so, men, this thing today of learning to be a bride is pretty significant. It's, it's pretty important because I'm telling you, it's going to have ramifications in your own marriage. And ladies, this will help you in your marriage, and this will also help you as the bride of Christ. Let's don't lose the issue. What we're here to do is learn today how to make ourselves ready as the Lamb's wife. And again, you get that one right, it will have tremendous carryover in, in your own marriage. Now, last week, what we, we talked about, and this is where we, we, we ended, we, we talked about that there is a, a book in the Bible where God shows a bride how to prepare herself for marrying her husband. And it just happens to be a particular book of the Bible whereby, listen to it, a Gentile bride is taken out of the harvest field of her Jewish kinsman redeemer from the city of Bethlehem. He takes her out of the harvest field to become his bride. And if we'll go back to the book of Ruth, and I'm inviting you to go back there at this point, what we find is this is what is taking place. This widow, and most of you are familiar with the story because this is a book that we have, we have taught in our church. But what has happened is there is a family 
a husband and a wife, Naomi and her husband Elimelech. They live in Bethlehem. They live in the city of bread, the city of, of blessing. And, and what takes place is that they fear that there is going to be a famine that's going to come in the land. Now, they haven't gotten hungry yet. They haven't skipped any meals, but they understand that a famine is going to be coming. And so rather than stay in the place of bread and the place of blessing, they move, and of all places that they move, they go to the cursed country of Moab, where God has already cursed this group of people because of their, their past. As they go there, their two sons marry Moabite daughters, and in just a short period of time, all three men in the story die. Uh, Elimelech and his two sons all die, and so there's three widows, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi decides, you know what, hey girls, you know what, I'm going back to Bethlehem. I'm going back to where this whole thing went awry. I'm going back. You girls, listen, just stay here. Y'all get remarried and live your life and hope things go well for you. I'm heading out. And Orpah says, you know, that sounds like a great idea. God bless you. And boy, Ruth says nothing doing. Listen, you guys, your family is the family that, that helped introduce me to Jehovah God. And listen, Naomi, I want your God to be my God. I want your people to be my people. And man, she gets on Naomi's heals and follows her right back to Bethlehem. So here you have two widows. They have nothing. But God has a provision back in his Old Testament book, a principle that is called the principle of the kinsman redeemer. And what that basically says is that the, the nearest kin, when there has been a, a death in the family like Ruth had had, her husband had died and they had lost everything, what could happen is... The nearest of kin, a kinsman redeemer, could buy back the land and everything that was lost in, in this situation if he would take her to be his bride. And so all of this is laid out in the Old Testament. The only time that it's ever actually applied is in the case of, of Ruth and her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And so the way that the story goes is, is, is Ruth is out in the field. She's out gleaning and Boaz comes out and he has never seen this babe before. He looks out there and he goes, Hey, fellas, who's that girl out there in the field? Man, she is a fox. And so, you know, they're like, Oh, listen, boss, man, you don't want to be messing with this girl. She is a Moabite, man. You don't want to be connected with, 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 with that deal. He says, no, man, I, I got to know about that woman there. And, he, and so what he does is behind the scenes, he begins to set up everything for her because he's madly in love with her. He wants to make her his bride. And he's, and of course, at this point, Ruth doesn't know anything about it. Naomi figures out that Boaz is madly in love with her. And in Ruth chapter 3, Ruth chapter 3, <clears throat> Naomi is now going to help this Gentile to prepare herself for the marriage to this Jewish kinsman redeemer from the city of Bethlehem. Look at verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And do you understand what she, she's saying to her here? She's saying, now, now listen, Ruth, what I want to do is I want to make sure that you're set for the rest of your life. And I think that it's time that you let Boaz know your intentions. 
Okay, now he's made his intentions abundantly known over the past several months. And he says, and I, I think it's time that, that we make our move here. And again, what she is doing here is she is presenting or telling Ruth how to present herself to Boaz as his bride. And you just, I mean, boy, if you know the word of God at all, you just got to love how God just telegraphs the picture of her marriage to Boaz, because she, she says, look at verse 1 again, Shall I not seek rest for thee? And for those of you who are students of the Word of God, man, you read that and immediately your mind is over in the book of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, where 11 times in Hebrews 3 and 4, you find the word rest there. And it, w- w- the whole context in, in, in Hebrews 3 and 4, it says, There remaineth therefore a rest... To the people of God, and of course, uh, who are those who enter into that rest? Only those who have been redeemed by our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, you've got Naomi, a Jew, who is helping a Gentile bride prepare herself for the marriage to her husband. Now, when I say it like that, does that ring any bells in your mind? You see, there is another Jew in the New Testament who helps a Gentile bride prepare herself for the wedding of her kinsman redeemer. And of course, that Jew is none other than the Apostle Paul. And he says in in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, he says, I've espoused you to one husband, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what's going on here. What God has done in his picture book, because he, again, he knows that we're kids and he knows that we need pictures. What he's done is he's pictured for us how it is as the Gentile bride of Christ, we prepare ourselves for our wedding to our Jewish kinsman redeemer from the city of Bethlehem. And notice, look at, look at verse 3. And let's begin to, to see what Naomi says to Ruth. Now, what we're going to do here is I'm going to show you the instruction that Naomi gives to to Ruth, and then I'm going to give you a statement of how that is applied to us in the New Testament. Okay, now now watch watch, watch, what she says here. First of all, she tells her, wash yourself. Wash yourself. Wash thyself, therefore, she says in verse 3. In other words, listen, Ruth, if you're going to do this thing, if you're going to prepare yourself for the marriage to this man, what you need to do is you need to wash yourself. You need to make sure that you're clean. Okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture, okay, ladies, picture this in your mind. Picture that you are going to be the groom in a wedding that we're going to be having here, okay? We're having this wedding this morning, okay? You're the groom, and the way that we normally do it is the groom comes and... The groom comes down and he stands right here. And, and it, pastor, he, he's, he's looking all pastorly right over here. And, and so what, I, what I'm telling him is, listen, in just a little while here, your bride is going to be coming through that door and she's going to come and she's going to stand right there. And so listen, you stand right here and you just get yourself ready to look into the eyes of your bride when she comes right there. Okay, so here you are. You're the groom. We walk out. You got your little you know, groomsmen all down here. You come down here, they're playing on the piano, they're playing on the organ. Oh, you can't wait. All the, all the little, you know, 
members of the wedding party, they all take their little place over there. They're insignificant to you. You don't even know they are there, man. And lo and behold, they hit the downbeat on that organ. She turns that corner. Your heart pounding like crazy, man. And you look in. She's in blue jeans. And she's barefoot. And she's got this nasty, dirty t-shirt on. And you're just kind of watching her come down the aisle. And as she's coming down, you, you notice and she's got dirt under her fingernails. And she smells like chickadoo. <laughs> and I mean, you're just like tripping out, man. She's got black eye boogers in the corner of her eyes. And I mean, you're just looking at this going, what in the world? Is, I mean, what would you think? What would you think? about a bride who on that day brought herself down to and had done nothing to prepare herself for that time, but was rather than it being prepared, just nasty, dirty. And yet, there's lots of people, even people in this room, that as we are awaiting the marriage to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, in His eyes, that's how you look, practically speaking. And that's how you smell. He says, listen, wash yourself. Wash yourself. You say, well, well, well how do I do that? Okay. Well, the, the Jew who was seeking to present a Gentile bride to a Jewish kinsman to redeem her. Again, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, and of course, if you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 5, you know that from verse 22 all the way down through the end of the chapter, he's given instruction after instruction to husbands and to wives. It's all been about the marriage relationship. And then he comes to verse 32 and he says this, This is a great mystery, but I speak... Concerning Christ and the church. You know what he's just saying? Now listen. He said, now listen. I've been telling you about husbands and wives. I've been telling you about that relationship. But you know what I've really been doing? I've really been telling you about the relationship that Christ has with His bride, with His wife, with His church. And so you can go back in that chapter then and begin to see that God is spelling out for you exactly what we as His church need to do to prepare ourselves. And back in verse 26, Ephesians 5, 26, He tells the bride how to come to the wedding wash. Look at it. He says in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, that the reason that He purchased us to be His bride, that He gave Himself, that He might sanctify and cleanse it, how? With the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, eye boogers, dirt under the fingernails, dirty blue jeans, and dirty bare feet, basically. But it should be holy and without blemish. You see, that's how you do it, y'all. As we prepare ourselves as the bride of Christ, as the wife of the Lamb, the way that we prepare ourselves is through the washing of water by the Word. You get into the Word of God on a daily basis. 
and you allow the Word of God to get into you. And you know what begins to happen as you do that? You are cleansed. But listen, without plunging yourself into this book on a daily basis, you cannot do it, man. Because the dirt and grime of this world gets on us every single day. And listen, if you're going to prepare yourself as the bride of Christ, listen, don't, don't do this thing because, well, I feel better you know, when I do read my little three chapters a day. No, get in there so that the Word of God can wash you so you can be cleansed. Listen, some of you need to use today as a, a turning point in your life to recognize you are the bride of Christ and what He is looking for you to do is prepare yourself for the ceremony. And you do that, first of all, by washing yourself with the water of the Word. There's a second thing that Naomi tells Ruth to do. In Ruth chapter 3, in verse 3, she tells her, anoint yourself. Anoint yourself. And of course, what she's doing here, she's telling her to anoint herself with something that would give her a beautiful fragrance to her groom. And in the Bible, this, this word anoint here, anointing is used as a, a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. In 1 John chapter 2, in verse 27, Look at it. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And of course, that anointing is the anointing or the filling of the Spirit of God. So if you want to be a... Listen. If you want to be a beautiful fragrance... To the Lord Jesus Christ, as you prepare yourself, after you've washed yourself and you've kept yourself cleansed by the washing of water, by the Word, anoint yourself with the Spirit of God. Be anointed or filled with His Spirit. Be anointed or filled with His Spirit. You know, men, there's just there's some fragrances that you... You like, man. You, you, you buy it for your wife and she wears that because probably that's the smell that you like to smell on her. And listen, to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing that pleases Him more. There is no fragrance that exudes from His bride that He is, is more drawn to and is more appealing to Him. And when He smells the anointing on us, the anointing of the Spirit of God as He fills us. And the Bible says that the, the evidence of the filling of the Spirit in our life, His anointing, as it were, is fruit. Galatians 5, 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All, all of these things. Listen. That's the anointing that He wants to smell in our lives. You know what He's telling us? It's just like when you go to Bath and Body Works. You know what they've got? They've got all of these smells of fruit, you know? I mean, you can smell like, ladies, you can smell like any fruit you want to, man. You married one, you might as well smell like one, you know? And you know what? 
the Lord Jesus Christ is into bath and body works. Wash yourself. And when you get out of your bath, anoint yourself. Smell like fruit. It drives him crazy in a good way. He wants to smell that in your life. So, first of all, wash yourself with the washing of the water by the Word. And then secondly, anoint yourself or be anointed or filled with His Spirit. There's a third thing that Naomi tells Ruth. She says, number three, change your clothes. Change your clothes. Ruth chapter 3 and verse 3 says, Put thy raiment upon thee. Ladies, do you remember when you were getting ready to get married? you remember the whole deal of going and shopping for that dress, man? I mean, you wanted to have on just the right dress. And it's a weird thing, man. You were willing to spend hundreds of dollars for a dress that you knew going into it you would wear one time. You know, it's not like, you know... What are you going to wear to church today, hon? You know what? I was thinking I might wear my, my bridal gown. Uh, you know? No, you, you knew going into this thing, you were going to wear that thing one time, and yet, man, that was so significant because there was not going to be a day that you wanted to be more beautiful at than that day. Is there not... Is there any other day that you could think of that you would be want to be more beautifully adorned than the day that the Lord Jesus Christ takes you to be His bride? And check this out. Here is Ruth. Now remember, she's a widow. The only thing that Boaz or anybody in Bethlehem has ever seen this woman wear are the black, dirty, dark, Thank clothes of widowhood, man. That's all anybody has ever seen her wear. And now Naomi says, okay now, girl. It's time for you to change your clothes. You get those nasty, dirty clothes, those, those widow's garments. You get those things off. And here, wear this. Change your clothes. And, and, and what did the Jew that was seeking to prepare a Gentile bride for a Jewish kinsman redeemer say to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24? Look at it. He says that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And you know what God is trying to say to us as His bride in the New Testament church? Be clothed with His righteousness. Be clothed with His righteousness. In other words, take off the clothes from your past and put on new clothes. Take off the clothes from your past and put on new clothes. Listen, y'all. Before we came to the Lord Jesus Christ... We wore the clothes of the old man. They were the clothes of death. You could look at our life, and our life was showing what we were all about by the life that we were living. Those were the clothes that were on us. They were grave clothes, the clothes of death. 
But we came to the Lord Jesus Christ and we put on His righteousness. And now what God is saying to us is, listen, now that you have become my bride, prepare yourself by getting those old, nasty, dirty clothes from your old life. Get those off Throw them away and burn them and put on the new clothes, the clothes of the new man. Listen, some of us are living our life right now characteristic of lost people. The thoughts that we think, the places we go, the things that we do, it's all characteristic with the death And the grave clothes that we used to wear before we're saved. And listen, it's time, y'all. We're living in the last days. The wedding is just about to take place. And it's time that we wash ourselves, that we anoint ourselves so that we smell like the fruit of the Spirit of God in our life. And it's time that we change our clothes. I mean, do you ever, do you ever do this? You ever work out? You know what? I was, I can't get on top of my yard right now, man. I, 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 first of all, I had to get it all ready to be mulched, and then I had you know to trim it all out. Then I had to weed it, and then had to do the mulch deal. I, I came in last night looking gnarly, man. Got all of that dirt and mulch junk all over my my clean white T-shirt and all that deal, you know. And man, I could not wait to go in there and get the mulch out of my fingernails and all that, and out of my eyes and all. That. I go in and take a bath and put on my cologne and then I, I, I went and I got the clothes that I've been working in the yard in and put those on so I could go to sleep. <laughs> I, you wouldn't do that, man. You wouldn't think of doing that. But some of us wouldn't miss our daily devotions and wouldn't miss asking God to fill us with His Spirit and walk out of our house with the old clothes on and just live our little life doing our little thing and never relate it back to the washing that we had when we got in the Word that morning, the anointing that we are asking for because the life that we're living doesn't add up. And it's time that we changed our clothes. There's a fourth thing that Naomi tells Ruth in Ruth chapter 3, verse 3. She tells her, Get down on the floor. Now, again, you would have to... Is it just me or is it humid in here today? Okay, me and Kim Burris are warm. He tells her, or Naomi tells her, get down on the floor. And in the context here, it's, it's, it's the time where they've been harvesting. They're out on the threshing floor. And so that's how it applies here. Man, in the New Testament, it's a whole different deal. But, but she, she tells her, get down on the floor. Okay, here is a, a young lady that is wanting to become the bride of this man. And, and what the Jew tells her in presenting herself is, now listen, if you want to be called up, get down. And as we're waiting to be called up for this wedding, you know what God's trying to get us to see? Is we need to get down. James chapter 4, in verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord... 
and he shall lift you up. In First Peter chapter 5, in verse 6, it says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, it, it tells us that we are to put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercies, kindness, listen to it, humbleness of mind. And if you want to know what all of that means practically, listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now listen, that's what our groom is looking for in this espousal period, this engagement period that we're in. He's looking for us to be of one mind with Him. And that one mind is a mind of humility. To where our whole life is expressed in lowering ourselves, getting down on the floor, as it were. When another Jew, Peter, is writing instruction to, to brides, to, to wives, in First Peter chapter 3, in verse 4, you know what he tells? You know what he, what he says to, to the ladies there, to, to the brides? He says, to put on, look at it in the middle of the verse, put on the ornament of a meek, and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, an ornament of great price. You know what God is trying to get us to see? As His bride, He loves it. When we have humbled ourselves onto the floor, we have a meek and quiet spirit. If you've got a wife that has a meek and quiet spirit, let me just tell you, man, I already know you appreciate that about her. Because Proverbs talks about those who don't. And he says, boy, you better have you a wide house, man, if you've got one that ain't. <clears throat> and we've got to understand something, men. Maybe the reason our bride isn't meek and quiet is because maybe you ain't as the bride of Christ. He tells us, listen, be humbled in His sight. Be humbled in His sight. Be washed by His Word. Be anointed or filled with His Spirit. Be clothed with His righteousness and get off the clothes of the old man. Put on the clothes of the new and be humbled in His sight. And then there's a fifth thing that Naomi tells Ruth. And oh my goodness, I, I love this one, man. She tells her, mark the place he lays down and lay down with him. Mark the place he lays down 
and lay down with him. Look at verse 4. And it shall be when he lieth down. Again, remember they're out on the threshing floor. All of the, the grain from the day is, is stacked up. It wasn't even worth going back into the, into the house. They just, man, they, they would sleep a while and they'd get right back on it. They're out there in, in that place. And it says, and which shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down. Okay. You come to the New Testament, and in Mark chapter 8 and verse 20, what it says is that, that Jesus didn't have anywhere to lay his head. And I know that you, you know all about that, that passage. And, and you know what's interesting? As you begin to go through the Gospels and you just begin to look at it, coming out of Matthew eight twenty and the principle that, that is established there, one of the things that you begin to see is the Scripture is very careful to say that, he, or, or to never record any time that he lays himself down or that he lays his head down. Now, obviously, he was humanist. He was our kinsman. He took on flesh, okay? So we know that he did. But the point I'm making is that the Scripture is very careful to never talk about him laying down anywhere. The only time the New Testament talks about Jesus laying down somewhere, you know what? It's always in the same place. In John chapter 10, in verse 17, Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. And he goes on in verse 18 to say, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And where did he lay it down, y'all? On the, on the cross. And now listen. If you want to be prepared to present yourself to your groom as a chaste virgin, here's how you do it. Mark the place he lays down and you lay down with him. That's exactly what 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 says. He laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And the New Testament application to us is this. What God's trying to get us to see is as we are preparing ourselves as the bride of Christ, we need to be surrendered to His cross. Mark that place, would you? Mark the place where He laid down. He laid it down, y'all, on the cross! Mark that place and you lay down on a daily basis with Him. Be crucified with Christ. That's what Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, right? I am crucified with Christ. And that's what God is saying to us. Listen, bride, I want you to be ready. And listen, you can't be ready without marking the place where I laid my life down and on a daily basis you lay your life down. Oh, listen. Every single day of your life, without it becoming ritualistic, come before Him and present your body. That's what Romans chapter 6 tells us to do. To yield your members to Him. Let Him be crucified on His cross. Your feet and your legs as they represent your way. 
your torso lays back on it and your arms are extended and your hands are open as you surrender to Him your work, your way, your work, your back, your arms, your hands, your work. Bow your head to receive the crown of thorns that will crucify your will, your wants, your words. It all comes right from here. Be surrendered to His cross. Mark that place, man. The only place He ever laid down. Mark it. And you lay down there. Die. So that He might live through you. That's what, that's what Paul was talking about. Knowing resurrection power in our life, and you cannot know resurrection power in your life without first knowing the fellowship of His suffering being made conformable to His death. You can't know resurrection without crucifixion and death. So be surrendered to His cross. And, and did you notice in the midst of Naomi's instruction there in verse 4 that there was a, a sixth thing that she told Ruth? Number six, uncover His feet. Uncover His feet. In other words, listen, Ruth, when, when He finds you, let Him find you at His feet. And you can already see it, can't you? I mean, as you go through the Gospels, it's hard to miss the fact that almost every time that you, you, it mentions the Lord's feet, someone has cast themselves there. And what are they doing there, y'all? They're worshiping. And the point is, as we prepare ourselves to be presented to our groom, may He find us in the same place that Boaz found Ruth. At His feet. Number six, be found worshiping at Christ's feet. Be found worshiping at Christ's feet. In Mark chapter 5, verse 22, that's where you find Jairus. It says, when he saw Him, he fell at his feet, in Mark chapter 7, he comes to, to Tyre and Sidon, and there's a woman who has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. And when that mother sees Jesus, verse 25 says that she came and fell at his feet. And you know what? We could go through time after time after time, all through the Gospels, where people fall at his feet and are, and are worshiping. But one that you don't want to miss is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. You, you find her on four different occasions in the New Testament. Every time, you know where you find her? It, it, I'm telling you, every time that you find her, she's always in the same place, worshiping at his feet. In John chapter 12 and verse 3, she, she takes a pound of very costly ointment and anoints his feet and wiped his feet with her hair as an expression of her worship of him. In Luke chapter 10, verse 39, this is the story where Martha is serving in the kitchen and, and where is Mary? M much to Martha's chagrin, she is worshiping at Jesus' feet. And do you remember what Jesus told Martha in verses 41 and 42 of, of Luke 10. He, what he said is, listen, Martha, you know what? You are caught up with a lot of stuff, but one thing is needful, and that's what Mary has chosen. In John chapter 11, Mary's brother Lazarus had died. Jesus comes a few days after he gets word of it, 
and says in John chapter 11 and verse 32 that when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet. In Matthew chapter 28, Mary goes to the grave where Jesus had been buried. Uh, and she, she's there with her, her friend Mary. But, but He had already been risen. And when they get there, the angel tells her to, you know, to go quickly and tell the disciples. But before she can get to the disciples... Jesus appears to him, and you know what? Matthew 28 and verse 9 says that she and her friend came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And I mean, every time that Mary found herself in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the most comfortable place that she could find herself was on her face at his feet, worshipping him. And may that be true of us. Let me ask you, when, when our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, calls us to Himself, where do you want to be? And what do you want Him to find you doing at that moment? Let me just ask you this. Have you been any place this week or been doing anything this past week that if He would have come you wouldn't have wanted to leave that place to be in His presence. You know, I used to think, man, I hope when I go, I hope I go right there, man. I hope I go preaching. I mean, that would be the coolest thing in the world, man. I'd just be busting out that book. And you know what? I began to see that one thing is needful. And it ain't preaching. It's worship. You know what? I love to just be in my closet worshiping at His feet and be brought right into His presence without even having to change positions. <laughs> because I can assure you, every one of us, regardless of where we've been on the earth, when you get into His presence, you will be at His feet. In, in Revelation chapter 1, in verse 17, John said, And when I saw Him, this is when John was caught up. When I saw him, I fell at his feet. And so will every one of us. But as we prepare ourselves, y'all, may that be where he finds us every single day. Uncover his feet, man. Hold to those feet and worship him. And then there's one final thing that Naomi puts on the checklist here. And you know what? Just relax. We're not doing flocks. You're going to get out early. Okay? Dad will be a happy camper. One, one final thing that Naomi puts on the list here. Number seven. Do what he tells you to do. Do what he tells you to do. She tells Ruth, Mark the place he lays down, uncover his feet, and you lay down there, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And you know what? You find that same principle repeated four different times in the New Testament. On, on four different occasions, God just clears off a little space, just like He does in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. And what He says is, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Now listen, we don't like to hear that in the earthly realm, but... What the Scripture says is, Wives, do what He tells you to do. And you know what? Now listen. 
What he's trying to get us to see here is that as the bride of Christ, our life needs to be marked by submission. It needs to be marked by submission. She'll be all right. Do what he tells you to do. Paul says, now listen, I've espoused you to one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, he comes through this whole chapter. And remember what we saw at the beginning. He says, now listen, I know I've been talking to wives and husbands through this whole chapter, but remember, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And what God is saying to us, y'all, is listen. Be submissive to His Lordship. Be submissive to His Lordship. As we prepare ourselves as the bride of Christ, we need to be submissive to our own husband. Be submissive to His Lordship. That's how He wants us to prepare. To be submissive to His Lordship. Okay, now now listen. Naomi gives Ruth seven things that she needed to do here to prepare herself as the bride of Boaz. And watch watch Ruth's resolve to what Naomi told her in verse 5. It says, And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. She comes to that place of resolve. She hears all of this and she says, you know what I'm going to do, Naomi? I'm going to do every single thing that you just told me. I'm going to do it. And you know what? Unlike most believers in Laodicea, she did it. You see, what happens to us is we'll sit in a service like this on Sunday morning and go, uh-huh, I'm going to do that. We have our little Sunday resolutions. We resolve things on Sunday. And then come Monday, it becomes rationalized. And so that we never actually perform the doing of it. But, but check out, the Ruth's response in verse 6. And she went down unto the floor, watch it, and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. She said, listen, I'm making a resolution, Naomi. I'm going to do all of what you just told me. I'm going to do it. And then she went out and she actually did it. And here's the resolve that I want to ask you to consider. Now, now listen. Just hold off on filling out your study sheet for just a second. Okay? Even if it comes up on the screen, don't fill it out yet till, till we say go. Okay? The question I want to ask you today is this. Will you resolve? Will you have the same resolve that Ruth did when she said, all that thou sayest unto me, I will do. What, what we've, we, here's how we got here. 
in Revelation 19, verse 7, the bride has prepared herself. We said, hey, let's learn what it means to prepare ourselves as the bride of Christ. We went back. I didn't invent this list. and We took it right out of here where a Gentile bride is getting ready to be married to her Jewish kinsman redeemer from the city of Bethlehem. Okay, now I'm asking you today, are you at the place to where you would honestly say to God today, Lord, all that Thou sayest to me, everything that You've shown me today, I will do. Lord, before you fill it out, before you say it, just be reminded, I'll wash myself daily with Your Word, and Lord, I'll wear Your favorite perfume every day. To the best of my ability, I'll be, I'll be anointed or filled with Your Spirit. And Lord, I'm going to change my clothes starting today. I'm taking off those old, nasty, dirty grave clothes and I'm putting on the clothes of the new man. And Lord, I'll humble myself. And before you, I'll put on the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit. And Lord, I'll lay my life down where you laid yours down for me. I'll lay it on the cross with you. And Lord, I'll worship at your feet. And Lord, I want you to know, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I will be submissive to you as my husband. I will be submissive to your lordship. Now, if you are at that place of resolve in your life, then go ahead and fill out your study sheet and say it. Lord, all that thou sayest unto me, I will do. All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. Now, that's your resolve. And it's really easy. Your response is going to be what happens in just a few minutes when we say amen and we walk out those doors. You know, sometimes as a pastor, I just got to wonder if there isn't almost some kind of spiritual eraser on the doors of the church to where we get all of this in our heads and we walk out and it's just it's just gone and man you know what we are preparing ourselves for a wedding and all most of the people in this room have done that at one point of time and you know all that went into it and those of you that haven't yet done it yet you know what you're already thinking about that day when you actually come and you do it. A lot of preparation goes into that getting married thing. <laughs> hey, y'all, we're only marrying the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. <laughs> I think maybe it's time that we said, I'm going to make myself ready. Let's bow our heads. You know what? We don't do this very, very often. But I just want to ask you, if you did come to that place of resolve today, and you, at least from your heart, were able to express to the Lord, Lord, the desire of my heart is to do everything that I was shown from your word today. I want to do that. I want to be prepared as your bride. If that was your resolve today, would you just raise your hand? Were you able to say that to him? Oh, bless your hearts, man. Bless your heart. And oh, I, I, I believe. I believe you. I really do. 
but just making that statement, y'all, doesn't mean a thing. Now, it's, it's a starting place, okay? And, and, and it's a good thing. I, I don't, I'm not trying to diss the fact that we're all here right now going, yes, that's what I want, okay? But uh, understand, the doing of it is what God's looking for. You know what? If you've ever gotten married, and some of you will find this out, it's a lot of work to prepare for a marriage. A lot of work. And you know what? It's a lot of work to prepare for this marriage. You've got got to know some things. And you know what? I don't know how God can make it any clearer to us than He made it today. And so I challenge you. Leave here today. Surrender to His Lordship. Get on that cross and let Him, by His resurrection power, live these things out through you. And could I ask you to do this? Would you just pray right now, believer in Christ? Talk to God about preparing yourself. But those of you that are here today, now listen, and you've never received Jesus Christ, do you understand what, what, what we're talking about here? In order to be prepared, you've got to take a different step than we've talked about today. Now those seven things, you, you, can, you can learn about those. But now listen, you need to be plunged into the blood of Jesus Christ. You can't, you can't by carrying out these seven things, you can't make yourself saved. You know what? You've got to be born into God's family in order to be engaged to the Lord Jesus Christ as His bride or His espoused bride. You've got to be born into God's family. And it comes by you first acknowledging that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ is God, that He paid for your sin through His death, burial, and resurrection, calling on His name and asking Him to sit on the throne of your life, to forgive you of your sin and to be your Lord. And at that moment, you become the espoused bride of Jesus Christ. And today, if you are not, if you are not a part of the bride of Christ that is preparing herself, you need to be prepared to enter eternity by becoming a part of His bride. Our pastors are going to be up on the front of this, this room, right up at the front doors up here on either side. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, before you leave here, would you come and talk to one of these men? If you're a lady, they'll get a, a lady to, to talk with you. Nobody's going to coerce you to do anything that you don't want to do. We would love the opportunity to be able to show you today how you could be born into God's family. And Lord, I do pray for those here today that don't know you and pray that they might prepare themselves to enter eternity by receiving you as as their Lord and Savior. And I do pray you would speak to their hearts. And again, Lord, for all of us that comprise your bride in this place, I pray that these practical instructions to us would change our life and that we would not just fill out a little chart in a room, but may these things be filled out in the living of our life, even this afternoon. We do pray that you would be glorified in and through us. 
In Jesus' name, amen.